Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Shebrews, to the Unexpected Cosmology, or I should say the Diaspora of Yasharel, take your pick. We are a Torah pursuant community that upholds Yahusha HaMashiach as our HaMashiach, as our Messiah, or I should really reverse that order. We believe in Yahusha HaMashiach, uh, Yahusha as our Messiah, but we also uh, want to walk as he walked. Uh, he showed the way, and that is to be obedient to our Father's commands. So welcome, everybody. We're in the middle of a study on the Book of Romans, Paul's magnum opus. And I'm telling you guys, this is kicking my rear end. This is a deep study. It's a it, People spend their whole lives studying this book out. And um, it has really pushed me to my limits. And uh, it, it, at the same time, it just excites me to be um, to be in a position where I am challenged they have to come up with this material. And so anyways, you guys can go ahead and open up the PDF. I will be reading from this. And that's a little bit different for a lot a lot of Bible studies because I am reading from a script, more specifically reading from something that I have you know, written down in book form. And that is for two reasons. One is that people can listen to this if they would like, or they can uh, read along at their own leisure. Now, I feel like I need to introduce this really quickly because somebody on the internet might, uh, or on YouTube land might come across this video and be like, Hey, I want to check this out. What is this about? Um, and so I, I can't expect you to go through chapter one, two, and three. You can jump into chapter four. I should probably do this every single week. My whole point here is to go line by line through the book of Romans, every single line and show why the Torah is is Paul's entire worldview, his peripheral vision, his frontal vision, his rear vision, that he bases the standard of morality on the Torah, and that if the Torah was done away with, then there is no standard for morality anymore. And we are told, growing up in the church, that the Torah was done away with, or at least parts of it. Depending on your denomination, it will you know qualify how much of it was done away with. But according to Paul... Uh, the Torah still abides. Now, I want to start out with this verse right here. I did last week, and I'll probably start out every week because this is a phenomenal qualifier for what Yahusha himself believed, the Messiah, and what he expects of us to believe. This comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. He says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Torah till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's quickly break this down. Yahushua says it three times. He tells you what not to think. And then knowing that you will quickly forget what he has just said, he then says it again. And this is what he says. Think not that I am come to destroy the Torah. So you are to not think that Yahushua Messiah is here to destroy the Torah. And then he says, I am not come to destroy. Okay. 
there he, he affirms it just so there's no confusion then he says but to fulfill and then all of a sudden people are like aha aha <laughs> fulfill means to destroy to do away with he did away with it and you know just like you know smack yourself on the forehead and i get this all the time you get every single week and then he goes on to say verily i say to you till heaven and earth pass he's quoting from deuteronomy he's quoting yahuwah the most high speaking in in deuteronomy till heaven and earth pass not one jot or tittle shall in no ways pass from the torah not a period not a cross t not an i nothing will change so if you this very moment can pause this video just do me a favor and go look out the window open the blinds and can you see heaven if the sun can be up it's okay the clouds can be there the stars can be there it's okay that's heaven and if you could look down and see the earth, then that means the Torah abides. It's still there. It hasn't changed. It hasn't gone away. And then here's the, here's the, the clincher. He says, if you want to be the least in the kingdom of heaven, go ahead and break one of the least of the commands, not even the grace, the least, and teach others to do the same. That should terrify all of us. That it, that's not a position we want to be in. Now, tonight we're going to be reading from Paul. And I need to stress that Paul is not an excuse, okay? He, he's not the exception to the rule. There is nowhere in Scripture where it says that, oh, by the way, by the way, yeah, yes, a Sabbath is eternal, the Torah is eternal for all generations, for the, for the, uh, for the sojourner and the national, for everybody. Anyone who wants to come into a covenant with Yahuwah, this is what, you know, this is your instructions, righteous living. By the way, though, down the road, generations from now, there's going to be a man, he's going to write you a letter. And he's going to be sent to a certain church and listen to what he says because he's going to do away with the, with the Torah. Um, he's going to do away with circumcision. He's going to do away with the Sabbath, fill in the blank. All right. Nobody is giving an excuse. Anybody in all of Scripture, Isaiah, you name him, Moses, Elijah, Noah, John, Paul, Peter, anybody, if they are to teach, away, teach to do away with one of the, the least of the commands, then according to Yahushua, they will be the least in the kingdom. Okay, so with that in mind, let's go forward. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. I just realized that I didn't pull it open in my Bible. I'm actually going to be reading from my actual Bible here. Give me a second. Here we are. We're reading from Romans chapter 4. Here we go. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before Elohim. For what says the scripture? Abraham believed Elohim, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the wicked, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom Elohim imputes righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahuwah will not impute sin. Comes this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, 
that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised. A lot of <laughs> circumcision, uncircumcised. Okay. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to <clears throat> Abraham or to his seed through the Torah, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the Torah are heirs, then faith is made void. And the promise made is of no effect because the Torah works wrath for where there is no Torah, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end. The promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only, which is of the Torah, but to that also, which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even Elohim, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. Wow, this is really wordy tonight, isn't it? Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken? So shall your seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of Elohim through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to Elohim. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to, to him. For, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Yahushua HaMashiach, our Adonai from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. And this concludes the reading of Romans 4. So I'm going to be starting a line by line. If you follow along, we're on page 80 of the PDF. Verse 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? Now that Paul has made a sharp and decisive distinction between the Torah of faith and the Torah of works, that was last week, if you recall, he asks his reader to apply his premise upon the father of the Hebrew people. After all, if there was anyone to boast in, then Abraham would be their man. With all that we've so far examined, you can easily see enough where um, see easily enough where he's taking his argument when referring to Abraham as our father according to the flesh, because like the Torah of faith and works, a distinction has likewise already been made between the fleshly and spiritual descendants of the same said person. To quote Messiah again as a refresher, being numbered among Abraham's children entails doing the works of Abraham. And that's a key phrase there, works. Those who called themselves the Yahudim, however, were performing the works of their father, Satan, telling us they never had faith in Elohim to begin with. And as I have already shown, Paul agreed when stating that the Yahudim were outright disobedient to the Torah due to a lack of faith. Therefore, faith and works are dependent upon each other. You can't have one without the other. What can truly be said is that faith produces works 
but works doesn't necessarily produce faith. It is the confused order of events which Paul is attempting to correct. I bring this up as yet another reminder, it won't be my last, because human nature has embodied or as embodied by our current religious establishments will take Paul's words regarding uncircumcision and proclaim, woohoo, we don't have to keep Sabbath or Yahuwah's holy days anymore. Cubano sandwich on me. That's the equivalent of giving someone an inch and then watching them take it a mile. Nowhere in Romans does Paul ever do that. You shouldn't either. Did he not just tell us that he and the Church of Rome established the Torah because of their faith rather than voiding it out? That comes from the last verse of chapter 3. You'll have to read it for yourself. I checked the closure of chapter 3 again just to be certain. He did. Try not to get too crazy then. In fact, true faith as embodied by Abraham confirms Paul's premise. The Torah of faith led him to the works of circumcision, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has whereof to glory, but not before Elohim. The question which Paul asked regarding what Abraham had discovered is quickly answered, and I don't think anybody is surprised by it. Had Abraham been justified before Elohim by the Torah of works, then he would have had something to boast about. We have absolutely no record of Abraham boasting, though. What he found is a justification in Elohim's sight because of his faith. It was his faith which emboldened, uh, emboldened him to be obedient. That's how Paul regards the story. And unless we are projecting our own boasts upon Abraham, then it is my suggestion that any straightforward reading would suggest the same. Paul never brings it up. But the destruction of Sodom is the perfect example of imputed righteousness. The angels sought a righteous person based upon Abraham's request, and only Lot made it out alive. Of course, his uh, two daughters did as well. He believed and then did something about it. Faith is pointless and holds no value without faithfulness, which is what Lot had. And as we have already seen, 2 Kepa 2a accredits Lot to a righteous person, which is really fascinating now that I think about it, because that's a non-Pauline uh, Paul, uh, reference to Lot being righteous. We are given absolutely no reason to conclude that Lot was righteous in the pages of Scripture, except that he feared Yahuwah enough to separate himself from the impending judgment. One thing that seems certain, however, is that Paul and Kepa would agree upon this point. Come to think about it, Abraham is the perfect example of the surrounding nations being grafted into the Hebrew faith. Paul knew it, and the Yahudim knew it. His father, Terah, uh, Abraham's father, was an idolater and a pagan, and Abraham was called upon not only to forsake the idols, but to altogether abandon Babylon, where he lived. He followed through with Elohim's commands because his faith was an advisory on what actions should be taken. Circumcision, of course, was still decades in the making, as well as the sacrifice of Yitzhak. But as we all know, he was always obedient to whatever Elohim asked of him. Though it may be argued that Abraham would be perfectly justified in boasting of his actions, Paul's attempt is to present Elohim's perspective. From Elohim's perspective, there is no one righteous, except for those whom he imputes righteous, uh, righteousness upon based on their faithfulness. At the time of his calling, 
it can truly be said that Abraham was a sinner. It was because of his faith, however, that Yahusha justified him. Why should the pagans choosing to follow in his footsteps and who were currently streaming into house churches as well as synagogues be giving, given any different treatment? Verse 3. For what says the scripture? Abraham believed Elohim, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Whenever anyone attempts to justify their imagined theology, and really there's seemingly no end to the doctrines of men, I'd like to offer a repeated phrase, chapter and verse, please, which is precisely what Paul offers here. He's quoting from Genesis 15, 6, which reads as follows. So you can see I set up the, um, the Masoretic next to LXX and then the Aramaic Targum. So the Masoretic says, and he believed in Yahuwah, and he counted it to him for righteousness, the LXX says, and Abraham believed in Elohim, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. And then the Aramaic Targum, interestingly enough, says, and he believed in Yahuwah and had faith in the word of Yahuwah, and he reckoned it to him for righteousness. I actually gave three different ancient versions to reflect upon. The LXX is considered by most to be the oldest of the bunch, though it is possible that the Aramaic Targum is older. Certainly the Hebrew Masoretic is the youngest, but that doesn't really matter. They all agree. Belief is a virtue, but even more so, it is an imputing of righteousness, at least in Elohim's eyes. Difficult to argue against that fact. And then look at how the Aramaic Targum phrases it. Abraham had faith in the word of Yahuwah. What? We all know who the word of Yahuwah is, don't we? If we are taking the Aramaic into consideration, then that tells me the righteous person has always had faith in Yahuwah holding his end of the bargain and not the other way around. Or I should say, really all three, but I should have said Yahusha there. Uh, Yahusha is the word. Which, by the way, is uh, that's a whole different study, but I believe that the covenant made with Abraham was always through Yahusha, through the word. So I think the Aramaic Targum gets it right. So why do so many Christians still insist that the Torah was a workspace system which needed done away with when Paul is working overtime to dispense with that myth? Again, Abraham was accredited righteousness by faith. Are you telling me Elihim changed his mind and decided not to accredit righteousness by faith? to the wilderness generation when the Torah was given? Was he being cruel and sadistic and damning an entire generation or entire generations of people for doing what he commanded them to do and then making a value lesson out of it? Are you then telling me that he changed his mind yet again and started imputing righteousness upon the pagans once Paul finally figured out that the Torah was done away with? Really, just listen to yourself. The definition of righteousness has never changed since day one of creation. And I should stress the imputing of righteousness. It's never changed. It's always been the same. Romans 4 verses 4 through 5. Now to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that works not, but believes on him that justifies the wicked, his faith is counted for righteousness. Paul turns now to an illustration. Supposing you work a job and get paid. That paycheck, that paycheck is not a gift. It is something which your employer owes you in exchange for a fulfillment of services. To say that we are entitled to salvation or that Elohim owes it to us on the basis of our employment is to solely see him 
as our employer. Don't do that. If salvation were a paycheck, which one might earn by working his way through debt, then nobody would be capable of fulfilling its requirements. In the instance of salvation, it is the employer who steps in and fulfills the requirements for us. That is what it means that our debt has been paid in full. It is in this way which we are to perceive Yahusha, our high priest, because obviously the Torah has already set up the rules which are to be followed. At no other time in his story would anyone in their right mind attempt to outmatch the high priest. Let him do his job. Rather than attempting to prove that we can fulfill his task, which again is to be the representative of Elohim, an advocate on our behalf, the outcome would be far better to recognize that we are sinners in need of him rather than the other way around. Verses 6 through 8. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man unto whom Elohim imputes righteousness without works, saying, another chapter and, and verse quote, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Yahuwah will not impute sin. If his critics were anything like religious people today, preferring the doctrines of men rather than the Torah of Elohim, then you figure they were frantically scrambling through its pages, hoping to find anything which might support that traditions song from Fiddler on the Roof. I'm not going to sing it for you guys, but you probably can all visualize or hear in your head right now traditions and prove him wrong. Rather than waiting all day or a lifetime even for a reasonable response, Paul decided to move on to his next cross-reference, which just so happens to involve the heart of Yasharil's greatest king. He is quoting from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2, and here is what it says. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Yahuwah imputes not iniquity and in whose ruach there is no guile. That's from the Masoretic. Let me read the LXX really quickly. Happy is the one whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Happy is the man to whom Yahuwah does not reconcile, neither is there in his mouth deceit. It's as I've been saying from the beginning. No study in Romans is complete without recognizing the truth of the Torah. Many Christians will advocate a worldview which has the Tanakh inciting two sets of instructions. One that is for the Jews only and outdated, and the other which is now applicable to the Goyim, but that cannot possibly be the case, as Yahuwah has already testified in his word that there is only one Torah for all generations and all people. I think we went over that last week in chapter 3. The Masoretic and the LXX uses two separate words, transgression and lawless, but they mean the exact same thing. Transgressing the law implies a lawless deed. Many are simply lawless and perfectly comfortable with their lifestyle. In fact, most Christians love the part about being forgiven of their sins, the imputing of righteousness and all that, but then try to tell them how the Bible defines sins and forget about it. Regardless, look at how Yochanan defines sin. This comes from Yochanan, Rishon, or 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever commits sin transgresses the Torah, for sin is a transgression of the Torah. The Torah cannot possibly be done away with. If it were, then we would not be having any. Oh, if it were, then we would not have anything to transgress. Humanity would not be a sinful people. 
there would be nothing to repent of. Oh, sure, they might come up with deeds to repent of. It happens every day. But it would only be according to invented doctrines from a religious establishment and not heaven standard. If there is no sin, then there is no reason for salvation, no grace, certainly no imputing of righteousness based upon faith and the workings of our high priests. To be even more specific, if there is no Torah, then there is no high priest to begin with. The Torah abides, and even you can and believe so. Let's put it like this. Any Hebrew reading the psalmist's words at any other time in his story, so long as they were raised in Elohim's precepts and not those of the temple controllers, would have understood precisely what he was getting at. What they wouldn't have done is squint their eyes in confusion and then conclude with a shrug, oh, well, I guess I'll have to wait around for Messiah to figure this one out, having my sins forgiven, seeing as how the Torah is a works-based system of salvation. It was the goal of every Torah-pursuant Hebrew to have their transgressions forgiven and their sins covered. The priesthood was an important component of that. Nothing is new. But then notice the flip. Those whom Yahuwah imputes righteousness rather than iniquity have a common character attribute. There is no guile found in the Ruach. What is guile exactly but deceit? A person who claims to have their sins covered, but then still chooses sin and rebellion is either lying to themselves or others. Once again, Yochanan agrees with this when he says, and hereby we know that we know him if we guard his commandments. He that says, I know him and guards not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 3-4. Now, I'm going to quickly comment here because I don't think I wrote it down is that when you go into modern Christianity, they'll say, oh, it's all about a relationship. That's how you know you're saved. It's, you got to have a relationship with Jesus, which is actually true according to what Yochanan Yo is actually saying right here. He says, uh, how do we know him? Right? How do we have a relationship with him? We know him. Well, we, we're in a relationship with him if we what? We guard his commandments. If we don't guard his commandments, then we're not in a relationship with him, and we're fooling ourselves. We're lying. There is, there is the guile invoked by David in which Paul quoted from, Yahushua forgives the sins of the penitent heart. That's how the office of high priest works. If someone guards the commands, then he knows the high priest, and more importantly, the high priest knows him. But if he does not guard the commandments, then he is not penitent of his lawlessness and therefore a liar to think he is imputed of anything, as the truth of Torah is not in him. As you can see, John says right there, the truth. That's the same thing as the Torah. We define that in, in, in Romans, in our study. The Torah is not in him. He's a liar. The problem with Paul's critics in his day was getting them to acknowledge that converts from the nations were imputed with righteousness by Elohim, despite being pagan sinners like Abraham was at one time. Today, the opposite is true. Getting Christians to rise above the status quo being comfortable pagans that they are, and recognize that the Torah is eternally true, the standard of righteous living. Verses 9 through 10, and a quick coffee break. Comes the blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Returning once more to Abraham's faith statement, 
The answer to Paul's question couldn't be any more obvious. His critics are in checkmate, and Paul knows it. Though circumcision is undoubtedly a physical sign of the covenant, nobody is debating that here. Okay, Be very clear about that. Nobody's debating that. Not even Paul. The sign itself would not qualify Abraham's entry into the said covenant for another several decades. They can't very well claim he was unrighteous until the scissors were brought out because the quoted text says the complete opposite. He was righteous and uncircumcised. The same faith which would lead to circumcision at a later time had already accredited him as righteous and gained him admission into a covenant which Elohim promised to keep on his end of the bargain. Contrarily, had Abraham denied circumcision, then his righteousness would be thrown into question now, wouldn't it? Capsized even. His faith would have been shown to be faithlessness. That being said, if Paul is comparing the Goyim converts to Abraham, but then claiming they are never intended to be circumcised, though already deemed righteous, then his argument has a loophole and, upon further investigation, sinks into the water. Paul would be advocating entry into the covenant while remaining lawless, and that, and that is uh, faulty logic. You will tell me we're expected to enter a different covenant from the one Abraham entered into and which the prophets wrote about. Actually, you might tell me many things. One which doesn't involve circumcision. Then why bring Abraham up at all? He would prove a mute point. Paul might as well tell the Yahudim he was the foreman of a brand new religion and not to worry themselves. But no, the Goim were entering the synagogues each Sabbath for a reason. And the Yahudim found reason for concern. Imagine if I were to enter a mosque come Friday and tell them I've discovered a prophet who's tossed out the Quran and his name is Bob Barker. Ridiculous. Who would even follow a religion like that? Bob Barker fans, maybe. But clearly, Paul was discussing the covenant cut with Abraham. He was using Abraham as an example so as to argue why Christians could enter the same covenant, albeit renewed. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. I seriously, when I when I when I was thinking about this this week, I'm like, oh my goodness, like he, why even argue for Abraham if if he's not the same covenant? If it's a different covenant, then it's a it's an empty argument. It doesn't make any sense. Romans four eleven, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. Oh boy, here we go again. Paul appears to be telling the Yahudim that the Goyim are to live in comfort in their uncircumcision. I should have said, I get so confused, guys. I think it should say uncircumcision. Well then, if Paul is insinuating rebellion through uncircumcision, then the debate is over and the Yahudim hold the moral high ground. The Torah couldn't be any clearer on the matter. Here's what it says in Genesis 17, 9 through 14. And Elohim said unto El Abraham, that's a whole different story, right? There, uh, different uh, study right there, calling him El Abraham, El for Elohim, Elohim Abraham. You shall guard my covenant, therefore, you and your seed after you and their generations. As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. 
This is my covenant, which ye shall guard between me and you and your seed after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. He doesn't say heart. He says the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a sign of the covenant betwixt me and you, and he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. You circumcise the eight-year-old's heart or his foreskin. Every male child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of your seed, they too are to be circumcised. He that is born in your house and he that is and he that is bought with your money must need to be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. It's like the in the sandlot forever. And the uncircumcised male child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. I'm going to read that one more time. That should frighten everyone. This comes from the words of the Most High. This is not coming from the words of Noel. And the uncircumcised male child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Again, not my words. Circumcision of the flesh is an everlasting covenant forever. Not a temporary one until Jesus shows up or Paul finally figures it out. If that were the case, then Yahuwah would be changing his mind on the matter, and we can't have that. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yahushua HaMashiach. It would take a truly perverse mind to have Paul insinuate that possibility, unless that is Paul, uh, that unless that is, I should say, Paul really is insinuating the possibility, which would then make him perverse and not the person and not the person warning against him. I need to read that sentence again. It would take a truly perverse mind to have Paul insinuate that possibility. Unless that is, Paul really is insinuating the possibility, which would then make him perverse and, uh, and not the person who's warning against him, Paul. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it the serpent who told Hava or Eve in the garden, did Elohim really say that? And so if Paul is throwing Yahuwah's clear command into question, then he is playing the part of the serpent. And we really shouldn't be surprised to find his critics weren't buying it the Yahudim. Neither should we. You will tell me he really is suggesting that. Circumcision is done away with. Proof that we should disregard Yahuwah's command for a person's letter, in which I will throw Acts 21.21 at you, and it says this, and they, I put in brackets, the Yahudim, are informed of you, Paul, that you teach all the Yahudim, which are among the other nations, to forsake Moshe, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children neither to walk after the customs, Acts 21.21. The context has the Talmudim approaching Paul in Yerushalayim in hopes of figuring out what was going on regarding the Yahudim's claims. They were spreading the rumor that he was instructing others to forsake the Torah. And as you can see, uncircumcision topped their list of accusations. Paul assured Yaakov and the others that he kept the Torah and taught others to do the same. It appears as though the Yahudim needed a patsy, though. The messianic branch of the faith needed cast into the role of lawless villains, and if Paul and Paul was their leading man. 
You too can make a patsy out of him, but you'll have to stand in line behind millions of others. And anyways, keep reading. And Paul was tossed from the temple, even though he took a Nazarite vow. Understand, if Paul was advocating against circumcision, then they were in their perfect rights to scoot his caboose to the curb. But according to Lucas, the lawless Paul was a false rumor started and spread among the Yahudim. Getting back to Romans 4.11. If I didn't know any better, Paul appears to be using a deductive argument. Let's see if we can figure this one out. One, Abraham received the sign of circumcision long after being declared righteous through, righteous through faith, though uncircumcised. Two, he wasn't merely a physical father, but the spiritual father of all who believe. Three, therefore he is the father of the circumcised as well as the uncircumcised by way of living example, so that righteousness might also be imputed on them. Another way of saying this is circumcision was and still is a sign or seal that functions to confirm Elohim's previous gift of righteousness. There is no other physical seal given. Early, earlier in Romans uh, chapter 2, verse 25 specifically, Paul stated that circumcision held value for the Torah observer without ever going into detail as to why, perhaps because his original audience was already educated on the matter. I don't know. I wasn't there. The ancients treated circumcision as a rite of passage, often marking the attainment of maturity, but more than anything, a transition to marriage. With Abraham, circumcision was a sign pointing towards the promised son, to Yitzhak first, that's Isaac, but then also in time, Messiah. Neither were of Abraham's doing. And so do try and understand something. Yahuwah instructing the sons of Yasharal to circumcise their sons at eight days old, long before the child could procreate, reinforced the prophecy given to Adam and Hava that the promised seed would not derive from human efforts, it would derive from the Most High alone. Verse 12. And their father, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but Paul's entire profiling process, declaring someone circumcised and others uncircumcised, has more to do with distinguishing, distinguishing between a Yahudim or Goy, genetically speaking, as per the common language use of his day. Hopefully that will clear up some confusion, probably not all of it. In claiming elsewhere that there is neither Jew nor Greek, what I believe Paul is attempting to convey, or rather continuously define, is the true genetics of a child of Abraham. It is a spiritual seed, not merely a physical one. And so you guys can imagine that the uncircumcision are those who did not grow up in a household where they were circumcised on the eighth day. They are the, uns they are the uncircumcision. In actuality, Paul despised the Parashim's rite of passage. Nobody was jumping Abraham in a back alley demanding that he be circumcised to be saved or to be declared righteous in their eyes. That's his issue. And yet, in saying there are righteous who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised, the elephant in the room is that Abraham was circumcised eventually. It's not simply a matter of Yahuwah personally instructing Abraham to circumcise his entire household, but then never bringing it up again 
to the recent wave of converts in Paul's own day. No, it was written down in the Torah as instructions for everyone and for every generation. They would get to it in time as they went through the readings and then reflected upon it and figured out, oh, I need to do this myself. He just didn't. His issue was that he didn't want these these dudes going around and saying, uh, you need to be justified in my eyes. You know, you you need to go jump through these hoops to please us, the temple controllers. And that's the way, as you guys all know, established religion works. You walk into any, you know, congregation, it's like that. In saying we established the Torah or further claiming that it should be read each Sabbath as Yaakov did in Acts 15, eventually the convert reaches that point in the cyclic story and has a decision to make. They have already been following in the footsteps of Abraham while pursuing the kingdom of heaven. But will they continue walking the path he trod upon in full obedience? There's some tension there, isn't there? That is a tension which is not up to the perishing, nor is it Paul's right to say it is not to be done, if that is indeed what he is saying. Even Paul, you see, is a man. As Paul quips, let Elohim be true and every man a liar. And Elohim said what he said, despite the theological circles men might walk around. Therefore, the decision is for each individual and household. Because ultimately, Yahuwah is the great circumciser. Verse 13. For that promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the Torah, but through the righteousness of faith. You may have to read this verse a few times through to understand what Paul is saying. No shame in that. I did as well. And it won't be my last. If chapter 4 of Romans can be uh, divvied up into several different bullet points, then we have just moseyed on over to his third line of debate. After insisting that Abraham had no grounds for boasting in verses 1 through 8, and that Abraham gained a right standing with Elohim before he was circumcised in verse 9 through 12, Paul is now hammering out his conviction that Abraham's righteousness was not something merited through his fulfillment of the Torah, but simply on the basis of his righteousness, which is by faith. For the Torah, you see, had not yet been delivered to the people of Elohim uh, at Sinai. The promise given to Abraham that he would be heir of the world is given in Genesis 17.4. No need to go over that now since Paul quotes from the very passage in a few short verses. For obvious reasons, his audience would have been well aware of Elohim's pledge and therefore was fully capable of taking his word for it. Again, though, the official delivery of the Torah to the people of Elohim would happen at Sinai, but not for another few hundred years. Long after the promise was given, when it arrived, it was entrusted to his seed. Are we talking about a purely genetic or a spiritual seed? Well, both. Contextually, however, it was always intended for Abraham's spiritual seed, as his true children are those who are declared righteous through faith. And I now that I think about it, that's another, you know, that's more more cognitive dissonance. I mean, if what Paul is saying was that it was always a spiritual seed, then it wasn't just the Torah wasn't just for a genetic seed until the spiritual seed came along and didn't have to do the Torah anymore. It was always for a spiritual seed. It was just the the sons of Yasharel who were entrusted with it. They were the ones who were supposed to instruct the rest of the world. Notice the domino effect then. If the promise was given through the righteousness of faith, 
then that same righteousness by faith was intended to be lived out through the Torah. Again, though, Paul is simply course-correcting the order. What good is walking out the Torah without righteousness imputed upon that same someone through their faith in the word of Elohim? Well, if we were to take Sinai as an example, many souls were destroyed due to their obstinate rebellion. Their appendage may have been circumcised, but their hearts sure weren't. How many in Paul's own day would have been capable of standing before the fiery mountain and still stand a chance? How about today? Scary thought. The Torah has a habit of making someone a terrorist if Yahuwah hasn't first circumcised their hearts. And man, that is such a reality. For those of you who have been on this walk with me, uh, before me, through the years, and you have been in these Torah camps, oh man, the Torah terrorists are the worst because they're walking out the Torah, or at least they claim to. It's more like they want everybody else to walk it out. They are the Torah police, and their hearts are not circumcised. And it just makes people into the worst people to know. If you meet a, someone with a circumcised heart, though, and they're walking out the commands, they're just a beautiful person to behold, just lovely to be around. For if they, which, oh, we're in verse 14 through 15 now, for if they which are of the Torah are heirs, then faith is made void, and the promise made is of no effect, because the Torah works wrath. For where there is no Torah, there is no transgression. Really, statements such as this one couldn't be any more straightforward, regardless of how many dozens of doctrines may have arisen from it. That would entail lifting it from the page as an island unto itself and then wringing it out of context to confuse things, which is quite literally a pastime for Pollyannity practitioners. I have included two back-to-back -back verses this time around so that you can once again see the flip of the coin. Verse 15 is intended to show the conflict of interest with verse 14. For starters, it is not the Torah which Paul takes issue with, certainly not the heart intended to complement it. But they who are of the Torah, which is the same thing as saying the people entrusting, entrusted with guarding it, they have already been shown to be a faithless people. He made that uh, whole argument earlier in Romans. And so if their genetic ties are the cause of heirship, as was so often the claim, then the faith of their father Abraham and the promise made to him is deemed worthless, which only complicates matters by then bringing the rest of Elohim's covenant into question. That is the very reason why in verse 15, the Torah works wrath among them, because they have no faith, proving in fact that they are not the heirs of Abraham's promise. I will again remind you of the sheer number of wilderness wanderers who were destroyed due to the rebellion against the Torah of Elohim, really the word of, uh, the word of Elohim, uh, Yahusha. The Torah itself did not establish the covenant made with Abraham. No, it set out to identify those who were genuine covenant members and those who were not. I don't want to pat myself on the head, guys, but I'm going to repeat this because I think this sentence is so profound. This is what the Torah does. It repulses people. It repels them away. It causes other people to stumble, and then it brings others so much joy and clarity, and close, you know, and just a love of the Father. So let me repeat this again. The, it, the Torah, set out to identify those who were genuine covenant members and those who were not. And that's why many who take this, this walk, this path, they don't make the cut. The Torah was intended to instruct the faith community in how to walk the righteousness out 
and many decided to take an alternate route. It started happening immediately. I mean, Moshe didn't even have time to deliver the 10 words, those are the 10 commandments, before a great number of souls turned to the golden calf via a big budgeted song and dance number. And the tragedy is they thought they were worshiping Yahuwah and doing it. And they never taught me that in Sunday school. Nothing has changed with humanity today. Supposing someone read Paul's statement, or his next statement, that there is no transgression where there is no Torah, and thusly concludes that is evidence enough that the Torah should altogether be avoided, then they are missing the point. It's the very reason why so many wishful thinkers within the ranks of polyandity would have the Torah done away with so that they needn't bother with it. They'd rather move, goalie po- uh, the, move the goalie posts on sin so as to clear their consciousness. But just as importantly, having Yahuwah circumcise their heart so that they might walk it out doesn't sound appetizing to them. I keep saying this, but it's merely the flip of the coin. The problem isn't simply with the Yahudim. The problem is with everyone. Verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to those only who were of the Torah, but to those also which are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Faith is the very instrument by which we might walk out the righteousness imputed upon us. But not reason. But now, uh, but now, reason why is finally given. Let me repeat that again. But now, reason why is finally given. Paul would have us acknowledge that everything boils down to one thing: grace, mainly the grace given to us by Elohim. To claim one might walk out the Torah and not need the grace of Elohim, uh, do is pure insanity. That man, some of these sentences got written a little weird. To claim one might walk out the Torah and not need the grace of Elohim is pure insanity, as they would hold an obvious bias towards their transgressions. Understand, then, the notion of grace is nothing new. Paul is not introducing an unknown mystery of the cosmos. Grace is not a distinguishing marker between Christians and the Yahudim. It's not two different religions. Rather, he is simply directing his readers to what has already been declared in the Torah. Consider. This comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. And Yahuwah passed by before him, this would be Moshe, and proclaimed, Yahuwah, Yahuwah, el merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, and keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Grace has always been a character attribute of Yahuwah. It's how he described himself on Sinai when delivering the Torah to the children of Yasharil. In Hebrew, the word commonly used for grace is, uh, if I pronounce this right, chin. And its meaning implicates what most of us have already come to suspect in our Christian upbringing. It is a pardon, favor, graciousness, compassion, and mercy all wrapped up in one package. That's precisely how Yahuwah describes himself here. He then goes on to claim, however, that he will by no means clear the guilty, a clear contrast to those who are forgiven due to repentance. Therefore, a son of Yashrael could stand around the base of the mountain singing, grace, grace, God's grace. But what good would that do him if he was found to be in rebellion against the commands of Elohim? You see how that works? It's just how easily we're just so deceived. Grace was never intended as a crutch 
for um, insurrection. For the Hebrew, grace was an action and, when properly executed, always a beauty to behold. It is a stride, really. In fact, I've seen it uh, interpreted in some translations as say, uh, when Noah found grace uh, with Elohim, it might say found favor with Elohim, but it also might say uh, found beauty. It is so. It is a stride, really. Not so much a person fumbling head over heels from one sin to another. No, he is. He gracefully chasses through the room in the most masculine of terms, which is to say, he manages to avoid stubbing his toe on the coffee table. Another thing about grace, however, is that question of what to do with the goyim, as well as Las Yasharel, uh, is finally solved. Grace couldn't possibly be something which was solely intended for the guardians of the Torah, as Yahuwah describes grace as a character attribute, and he is an Elohim for all people. It was therefore intended for those who were raised in the 613 laws of the Torah before coming to faith, as well as those of the surrounding nations who come to faith and then are espoused the Torah. All right, verse 17. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even Elohim, who quickens the dead and calls those things which uh, be not as though they were. I had explained some pages back that Genesis 17.5 would be quoted, and there you have it. Done. Look it up for yourself if you don't believe me. I'm not making a chart this time. The LXX is the translation which most accurately agrees with Paul, by the way. I suggest going with that one. By the time Abraham was made this promise that he would be the father of many nations rather than simply one, Yahuwah had already divorced humanity at Babel, dividing the lot into 70 languages and then assigning Elohim over each of those 70 nations. That was the world which Abraham, inha uh, Abraham inhabited. Was Abraham confused on how he might be the patriarch of another nation's genealogy? No, I don't think he was. Not if he understood the righteousness imputed upon him by his own faith in who Yahuwah was and what he was ultimately about. Well, maybe only a little confusion, particularly where it comes to ironing up the finer details, a predicament of all adherents to the faith. That includes you and me. We're all confused about some things. But Abraham knew. And so did the Yahudim of Paul's own generation. The promise was twofold, really, because a seed was promised to him which would bring about a completely separate set-apart nation. The Yahudim, as well as the Levites, were mostly all that remained of the tribes of Yasharel. That little fact did not escape them. And so regarding the descendants who were also expected from among the other 70, it's not like the, the, Yahu, the Yahudim didn't know that to be the case. They weren't ignorant. No, they were arrogant. They were self-righteous. But above all else, control freaks. It was they who held the keys to the temple, which granted them access to Elohim. They wanted kingdom living on their own terms, apart from the Torah, making them extremely jealous of the competition. So again, imagine the contempt in their hearts when Paul is leveling the playing field and claiming everyone has access to Yahuwah, as well as his instructions in righteous living. Look, look at what happens, uh, or look what happened in Acts 21. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Yahudim, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, uh, this is Paul in the temple in Jerusalem, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Yashrael, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people. And the Torah, there it is, he's teaching them against the Torah. And this place, 
and further brought uh, the Greeks also, uh, not the temple, and has polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city, uh, I guess it's uh, Trophimus, and uh, uh, I can't even pronounce that. Hopefully you can see that. Whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and for the doors were shut. Uh, welcome to whoever's coming in. Okay, I have that comes from Acts 21, 27 through 30. The Yahudim were jealous of Paul. I know it doesn't say that exactly, but it seems pretty obvious to me. It's embedded within their false accusations. All these people are coming to Messiah, and they're not keeping to our traditions, and so Paul is to blame for it. Oh, and look, a Greek entered the temple, and he's not a Yahudim, so it must be Paul's doing. Another thing which Lucas doesn't outright mention is they're projecting themselves onto Paul. They were the ones breaking the Torah, and so they accused Paul of the very thing. And again, I will stress that if Paul really was breaking the Torah, they had every right to throw him out. What is their ultimate response to not having their way? I highlighted it for you. They drew Paul out of the temple and forthwith shut the doors. It was their way of saying nobody had access to Yahuwah if their doctrines weren't followed. That was a genuine fear of many, you know. There were secret followers of Yahusha, uh, according to the Gospels, and indeed others who altogether denied him for fear of being cast out of Yahuwah's presence by the temple controllers. So again, I ask you to consider the ramifications of a guy like Paul leveling the playing field when writing these letters, claiming everyone had access to Yahuwah through their high priest Yahusha proof of which can be found in the promise made to Abraham. And Yahuwah always upholds his end of the deal. Romans 4.18 Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall your seed be. What does it mean to suggest believing in hope against hope? Well, I take it to mean Abraham had hope when there was none to be found. Actually, guys, I really like this part. If you're drifting off, pay attention here. He was old, and the last he checked, Sarah was too. But you probably knew that much. And so you will easily recall how the rest of the story goes. A child was eventually born, but not before having no conceivable way of having one. That was a, a pun, by the way. It wasn't like they didn't give the procreation department the old college try. Imagine the judgment thrust upon them by everyone else with dozens of children and counting. Anyone who struggled to conceive children of their own will know what that is like. And I certainly do. My wife and I struggled for years and years to have children. And then after finally having children, after years and years and years and years of marriage, we had to wait another eight years to have another child. And it wasn't like we weren't trying. There were quite literally nations being born around him. Undoubtedly, Abraham wanted to please Elohim and follow through with what Yahuwah had ordained. Think about this. Elohim is telling you that you're going to be the father of a nation. And think about the pressure on you to, to perform uh, in the sheets. And it's not happening. And you're like, I want to please Elohim. I want to be the father. I want to do what he says. And it's, it's like, what am I doing wrong? Think about that. I mean, it's hard enough not to be able to have children and think, man, what am I doing wrong? For those of you who've ever struggled with this, it's hard. But I mean, 
again, think about in his case. That much is made known with the circumcision events, but he was left hopeless in doing anything about it. Sarah even asked Abraham to take Hagar into his teepee, make a nation out of her womb, but Elohim wouldn't have it. Had Yishmael, uh, that's Ishmael, become the promised seed rather than Yitzhak, then Abraham would have kickstarted a nation by his own works. You see, the only option he was left with involved resting in the promise of Yahuwah Elohim and letting him perform the heavy lifting. Let Elohim be true and every man a liar, that sort of thing. Abraham is an example for everyone deemed his child and that he simply believed it would happen because his hope fully relied upon the character of Elohim. And this is one of the dis the discussion points I'd like to maybe talk about more, about what the faith of Abraham looks like. If salvation comes through having the faith of, of Abraham and how we perceive Elohim and how he will do all the heavy lifting for us, um, you know, what does that look like in our own lives? Romans chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of Elohim through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to Elohim, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. I'm not sure if you're seeing what may or may not be going on here. If you do, then awesome. I'll proceed ahead and mention it anyways. Paul appears to be comparing Abraham's faith in Yahuwah with faith in Yahusha HaMashiach. He doesn't outright state it here, but all indications seem to suggest it was on his mind, and even more so that a case is being built in that direction. If he doesn't, then I will eat my words. Just don't expect it to happen in this chapter. Well, dictating a Torah of works rather than faith, as Abraham had, the Yahudim failed to promote a belief which let Elohim be the end-all of salvation. They deemed themselves righteous, but not because Yahuwah had imputed righteousness upon them based upon a need for him. A simple deduction would suggest the same notion being regarding Messiah. Letting Yahusha be the advocate was well beyond their own realm of possibilities because they had no saving faith in Elohim to begin with. That same line of logic will have the Yahudim fighting feverishly against the incoming wave of going converts on the basis that Elohim is the one doing the heavy lifting and not them. You see how that works? Like they're fighting against the Goim coming in because they're not, they're not the ones doing it. They can't let Elohim do it for them. That's the whole struggle happening here. I don't doubt for a second that the lie perpetrated by the serpent in the garden that Adam and Heva could be as Elohim points to the revelation of every neophyte who uh, perceives the divine within and determines to be the captain of his or her own destiny. Such a shame that so many lend the prince of darkness an ear, seeing as how Satan isn't even capable of saving himself in the end. And anyways, it seems as though Paul has made his point. Abraham's faith was in the person of Elohim and his word and not in himself. If Elohim asked Abraham to loosen his loins and take a knife to it, he did it. If he asked him to tie a bundle of wood to Yitchak's back and lead him to the mountaintop, he did it. Why would he reject the unveiling of the Torah? All bets are on a circumcised heart. He wouldn't. 
rejected, that is. If, if Abraham were standing at the mountain of Sinai, he would embrace it. Time and again, his faithfulness was derived from a faith which imputed him with righteousness. Verses 23 through 24 says uh, of Romans, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Yahushua HaMashiach, our Adonai from the dead. I guess I will eat my words then. Don't get me wrong, I was absolutely correct in suspecting Paul had a comparison in faith to make between Abraham and Yahushua. I just didn't expect it to happen in this chapter. I thought it might happen like in chapter 6. But there it is. You figure that uh, people were all over Paul like ugly on an ape. After frantically scrambling through scripture and having their backs pinned to the wall, they very likely claimed the imputing of, right, the imputing of righteousness upon Abraham was the exception to the rule and not intended for anyone else. You know, I hear that all the time, you know, when you try to show why we are to follow the Torah, you know, it's always the exception to the rule, that verse. To this, Paul responds, why was it written then? For Abraham's sake alone? Ridiculous. Very likely, the, uh, theoreti or the theoretical resurrection of Yetchak was a commonly discussed idea among the perishim of Paul's day. Had Abraham seen the sacrifice to its end? A good indicator of this can be found in Hebrews, which reads as follows. Uh, Hebrews 11.19 says, Accounting that Elohim was able to raise him up, even from the dead, this is talking about Yitzhak, from whence also he received him in a figure. Uh, he was a figure of Messiah to come. And so you can see what Paul is doing in wrestling the faith away from the temple controllers. Yitzhak wasn't sacrificed, but had he been, Yahuwah would have brought him back from the dead. Just as importantly, Abraham, quote, who against hope believed in hope, unquote, knew Yahuwah would have his set-apart nation through him. The Yahudim may have claimed that they would have been standing right there alongside Abraham in faith, but they would they really, though? Look at what they did to Messiah. Yahushua was sacrificed by the Yahudim on behalf of their father, Satan, never suspecting that Yahuwah Elohim would resurrect him. The comparisons don't end there, however. Immediately after the angel talks Abraham uh, into putting the knife down, uh, he talks him off the ledge, we read the following. And the angel of Yahuwah called unto El Abraham, there's El again, that's interesting, out of the heavens the second time, and said, By myself have I sworn, says Yahuwah, for because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your Yaqid, that in blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. The promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's seed was given because of his obedience. So too was Yahushua obedient. To the end, he went willingly to the sacrifice, even to the point that the nails were driven in. And so, Yahuwah Elohim used him to fulfill what had earlier been promised. Undeniable proof of salvation through faith and Yahuwah's ability to uphold his end of the bargain is given in the sheer number of Goyim who believed Yahushua was resurrected. The nations were streaming in. They were choosing the blessing rather than the curse. At the end of the day, who was being more obedient? Those who had the Torah but 
didn't believe in Elohim's promises, or those who believed but couldn't tell the difference between Yom Teruah or Yom Kippur. Of course, in time, hopefully, as they read the Torah, they would. Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification? With the final line of the chapter and in true rabbinical fashion, like a scriptural mixtape containing the greatest hits found within scripture, Paul constructs uh, Yeshayahu 53, that's Isaiah, into the sacrificial narrative. Even the quip he uses isn't a direct quote, more like a mishmash. Uh, Yahusha being delivered for our offenses can be found in 53.6, which reads, And Yahuwah has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, there are various translations, as you know, and some might read, gave, up, uh, gave him up for our sins. They all mean the same thing. Yahuwah put a stop to the sacrifice of Yitzhak because he alone could not bear the iniquity of our transgressions. But Yahusha could. The son of Abraham was but a shadow of the son of Elohim to come. It is through Yehusha HaMashiach that the nations would place their hope and be blessed. And then notice what the last half of his sentence is uh, lifted from. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. That comes from verse 11 of chapter 53 of uh, Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu prophesied an event which couldn't be any more evident than with the death and resurrection of Yehusha. For the first time in his story, the high priest had personally borne the transgressions of Elohim's people. What else is a transgression but the breaking of the Torah, the very thing which the Yahudim had accused the Goyim of? Like it or not, those who believed in his sacrifice were justified. The Yahudim were free to continue sticking their noses up at the people of the pigsty. But like the parable of the prodigal son, those who were formerly lost were streaming in. And they were missing out on the party, the Yahudim were. All right, that concludes this week's um, uh, study on Romans chapter 4. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope it wasn't confusing. Hopefully it, it spilled it out. And it's funny that I, I stumbled over my own words a lot in there. And it's like, but when I, had to, when I had to kind of pull back and read my sentence, I'm like, hey, that actually makes sense. And I would reread it. But... All right, guys, tell me your thoughts before we move on tonight. And uh, and again, I, what really impacted me in here was really understanding if, if Paul is saying that salvation comes through the Torah of faith, and then he describes what this faith is. He says, uh, hope beyond hope. I love that line. It is so good. It's like like you look at you 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 look at around at the world, at the cosmos at the firmament above us, and you see all the evil and how they're all working against Yahuwah. And you're like, how in the world, in this dark world, is Yahuwah going to come through with his word? How is he going to uh, bring an end to this evil? How is he going to take Satan and toss his, his butt in you know, the lake of fire? How is he going to do this? But you know, it, when all seems at loss, you, know, you have the hope beyond hope that he will come through with his word because that is what his character is. That is who he is. And that is what Paul seems to sum up in the, the Torah of faith, uh, that if we are following the Torah of faith, we do it because we recognize who his character is and the goodness of it 
and that he is doing this for our own health. Um, you know, it's, it's like a, like a child who, um, you know, there, you can, a child can uh, ask a question, why am I not allowed to cross the street? They don't get it, but they just trust that their, their parent has the best interest in them and they wait to hold their hand across the street. That's what the Torah is. It's Yahuwah, you know, saying like, I know what is clean. I know what is unclean. Just trust me. Just, just hold my hand. I will show you how to do it. Let's walk this out. All right. So before we move on tonight, does anyone have any thoughts? I'll open it up to you guys. Yeah, I'd just like to say that I'm so glad you did this study because I was beginning to be totally anti-Paul. And now I'm beginning to understand that Paul is definitely Torah observant and that his teaching has just been distorted and misinterpreted by the interpreters the scribes and the church so it's it's been a real blessing and thank you so much yeah i do appreciate that and and i want to be clear to everybody okay and i started out i'm going to start up probably next week saying the same thing if paul is saying that people are not to be physically circumcised then according to the torah that i can't see any way around it he is he is doing away with one of the laws all right. And that's why I read uh, what it says in Matthew chapter five, that if you break the if you break the least of his commands and tell others to do the same, then you'll be the least in his kingdom. Or as Yaakov says, you break one command, you break it all. You break the whole Torah. OK, so that's you can't he doesn't get an out on this. Um, so this goes both ways. I, I'm speaking to both crowds here. And um, but I. Um, but I think that when we really pull back and understand the audience he was speaking to, a uh, Torah terrorist uh, who didn't even have faith in Elohim, um, they just had faith in themselves, uh, we can really see like why he's like, no, I don't want you uh, circumcising my uh, the people coming in. Get your filthy paws off of their private parts.